My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. Cyanidation is the process of separating precious metals, gold and silver, from all impurities. They are like the impurities of life that prevent the establishment of building healthy relationships for success. A triptych is a picture with three parts that, when placed together side by side, represent a whole image. This memoir organizes the formative years of my life in three parts to illustrate the foundational events that make me who I am. Back in the day when I was growing up in the heart of the Midwest, I had no idea what healthy relationships were, let alone how to obtain tools to build successful ones. Now, more than 40 years later, as an educated woman, I'm expected to pretend that my upbringing was pristine and that every decision I made and opportunity that presented itself brought forth fruitful results. You know, that Claire Huxtable life. My mother always said this, life interrupts the best laid plans. And here I am operating without so much as a blueprint. My life was not cultivated in the image and opinions of others, just a praying grandmother and an awkward navigation of survival, fumbling towards a personal perception of success, only to learn years later that God is completely and unequivocally in control. That was an excerpt from the preface of the book, Cyanidation, The Refinement of My Life, as read by today's guest, author, Dr. Genoa Graham, PhD. I have to admit, this is one of the most intimate interviews I have produced to date. This book contains several events from my childhood, albeit from my sister's perspective. Yes, Dr. Graham is my sister, and she will be reading excerpts from her book throughout today's episode. Trigger warning, we do discuss a pretty disturbing event early on. It is my belief that it is difficult to understand the depth of her story without it. As usual, I can be reached by emailing the MJG show at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Dr. Genoa Graham, PhD. Dr. Genoa Graham. Welcome to the M. Jason Graham Show. Thank you for having me once again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, for those who are new to the podcast, could you tell us about your background and what you do? Um, so in a, a nutshell, what I do is I help people save time and save money, um, whether you represent a household corporation or a multinational corporation um, I'm able to go in and help you uh, make your processes more efficient and save you money um, where I can. <laughs> so you have been a guest with us, I believe, three for three episodes, uh, one in the first season, the, the premiere episode in the first season, and then also two episodes in season two. This yes. season, um, you are back because you've written a book. Uh, could you give us the name of the book? 
So the name of the book is Cyanidation, The Refinement of My Life, a memoir. Yes. So this is not a book on finance. Uh, this is a memoir. So um, you're three years, you know, you're three years younger than I am. Um, why did you decide to write a memoir so early in life? So I decided to write a memoir because um, everything that I have been through is not necessarily unique, but I've been through so much in a short period of time. I figured it was a good time to get my experience on paper to share with others so that they could use it as a tool um, to kind of build their own best practices or even know what not to do in certain situations. So I wrote it to help people. This section is entitled Nivea and Popcorn. My earliest childhood memory was warm, comforting, and fluid. Blissful waves of emotion surrounding me as my mind slowly drifted into consciousness upon awaking from a sound sleep. The feathers slipping from the blanket that covered me tickled my nose. The smell of freshly popped popcorn mixed with seasoned salt was in the air. I heard my mother's voice in the other room softly singing a cheerful melody. Rumbles of familiar clanks and tinkles confirmed that she was in the kitchen. My stomach began to roar and grumble in response to the fragrant corn filling the air. The sound was so loud that you could probably hear it across the room. Why haven't I opened my eyes? I began to move only to realize my efforts were restricted. I was laying face up in a somewhat awkward position. I lifted my hands to remove the blanket and its feathers from my nose while trying to shift my body's position. To my surprise, my hand movements were also restricted. My thumbs moved somewhat freely. However, I couldn't spread my other four fingers to grab the blanket. Mittens. My hands were covered with mittens. Why did I have on mittens? I chose to use my elbows instead of my hands to shift my position and relieve the now throbbing ache of my lower back. It was then that I noticed the extreme, unforgiving pressure from the top of my chest to the tips of my toes. I wiggled my toes in protest to confirm the familiar numbness, and I was instantly annoyed. Looking back, I should have been afraid or scared, but somehow I wasn't. This was normal. Okay. Well, the first story um, is... Nivea and popcorn. So why did you open the book with this memory? So this memory is one of my earliest memories um, that when I reflect on it, I think fondly um, as a point of joy in a pretty much turbulent childhood. Um, I wanted to be completely transparent, naked, if you will, um, about my trauma and how it's offset by little things that make me smile. Um, there were a lot of happy mo moments in my childhood revolving popcorn, movies, and music. Um, even to this day, I fight the urge to look for seasoned salt when I smell, you know, popcorn popping or popcorn in the air. 
Uh, yeah, I actually, um, I have that, that problem too with uh, popcorn and seasoned salt as well. So you described a, a ritual in um, Nivea and popcorn. And I wanted you, if you would share with the audience, what made that ritual necessary? Um, so the ritual is daily moisturizing. So every day I would have to get lotioned pretty much from head to toe um, with a moisturizer, which at the time was Nivea. So at the tender age of 14 months, um, I was placed into a pot of boiling hot water. Um, so I don't remember um, what happened to me, but um, basically I had, you know, burns um, on my body. I'm told that a neighbor ran into the house and put butter on my burns, um, you know, snatched me out of the pot, put butter on my burns. Um, at the time, that was a household remedy, um, which we now know that that's a big no-no because it makes it worse. Um, so because butter was put on my burns, the burns got worse and my flesh actually began to cook and the diaper and the clothing that I was wearing kind of melted into my skin. Um, so I spent the next year and a half in the hospital undergoing skin grafts and surgeries and um, physical therapy. And part of that physical therapy was making sure that my skin was moisturized enough so that it wouldn't tear as I grew. Um, I was told I wasn't supposed to live, or if I lived, I wouldn't walk. But by the grace of God, I can run and climb and jump and do all kinds of things. <laughs> yes, and I can uh, attest to that. Um, that was kind of a, a running joke in our family is that, you know, the doctor said that she would never walk again. And it was true because she ran you ran everywhere um, as fast as you could. So being on this, this side of it as your brother and just knowing what that, what you went through with that. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, it's actually been a long time since we've discussed what happened to you all those years ago. How are you still dealing with the effects of that trauma today? Or are you still dealing with the effects of it? Um, by the grace of God, I've been delivered. Um, I used to have a fear of the kitchen. I used to have a fear of large bodies of water, of boiling sounds, um, of grease cooking. Um, but um, I don't have those fears anymore. Um, I used to have um, self, I was very self-conscious about my body, very insecure about my body image and skin texture and tone and all of that. Um, but I don't, I don't have that anymore. Um, I, as a born again believer, I only disrobe for medical checkups. Um, so until I get married, that's really not something I have to worry about. Um, but, you know, everybody has different reactions when they see scars and by the grace of God, mine are not visible unless I choose to show them. Um, so all of my insecurities and self-consciousness and all the things that came along with my trauma, I've been, been delivered from them. But I haven't escaped them all. As I get older, I'm noticing I'm having a lot of stiffness 
um, particularly on my left side in my hip joints from my waist to where my leg meets, you know, my hip um, if I sit too long or I lay too long. So there are some lingering effects from that standpoint, from a physical standpoint. (laughs) Okay. Well, I am definitely happy to hear of the, the ongoing healing process with that for you. Now, you mentioned in your book that you took on the role of protector at eight years old. To most adults, that would seem to be a ridiculous notion. And yet, there have actually been many memoirs written by women that echo that same sentiment, such as the color purple. What contributed to that decision at such a young age? Um, That decision was heavily influenced um, by our mother and her medical condition. Um, There were many times that she would succumb to her seizure disorder in public places. Um, At the time, nobody really assisted anybody that had, you know, physical medical issues. Um, They just called the ambulance. And we were spending a lot of time as a family riding in ambulances and being admitted into the emergency room. And nine times out of 10, our mother would come out of the seizure in the ambulance. And so I took it upon myself because we didn't have a protector in the family to start negotiating and pleading with people not to call the ambulance. And so I kind of took charge of mom while she was under the seizure and recovering from it. And so that seemed to appease people. And I kind of got started in that. And as more and more situations happened and the older I got and the the more, um, I guess, confident I got in handling situations, I just took on that role and just took responsibility. Now, that was definitely something that we we both did. Um, I, you know, I I think about the times that I had to do it um, when you were there because you were younger than me, I was the older brother. But I, I didn't so much think about the times when you and mom were alone and it would happen. And so it didn't really occur to me until I read your book that there were those moments um, that occurred when I wasn't there. And that was when you were, you were taking charge, um, which is really, really eye-opening for me because, you know, we, we grew up together, right? Um, And we are very close now. Like, it's not like we grew apart as we got older. And in this book, there are things and perspectives that I was not even really aware of. And of course, I wouldn't be because I'm not inside your your mind. I'm not inside your skin. But it shed a, a lot of light for me on just like how we grew up and the effect that it had. This section is entitled, Selfish Summer. Life on the far east side of town was now a routine. I knew who to speak to, who to wave to, and who to avoid. The country area was converted into livable space to house the increasing population of low-income families with children. The area was extremely rough with executions, stomp outs, curb jobs, drug deals, and shootouts as common as the streetlights turning on at sunset. 
Among this treacherous terrain, my mother's illnesses made our family invisible to the general population. I was never called as a witness to any crimes or as much as questioned by criminals or cops. As long as I did my homework and chores, obeyed my teachers and mother, protected my family, and kept to myself, all was well. I didn't have any friends, so I spent a lot of time reading, mostly science fiction. I was a motivated member of the Bookmobile Club. I let my imagination run wild as I looked forward to the future. I was starting to spend more time with our extended family. Cousins came to visit frequently and even spent the night. School was out, but I enrolled in summer session just to keep myself busy and away from the searching eyes of some of the boys and older men on the block. I loved having a routine and learning new things such as gardening. The Midwest area is big on learning who the future farmers and agricultural leaders are, so participating in the 4-H club was a huge deal. I spent a lot of time during the summer after my sixth grade year nurturing squash, watermelons, and green tomatoes. I sat in my designated plotted area of the schoolyard and picked weeds while massaging the deep, dark earth between my fingers. The earth was soft and warm from the heat of the sun. I wanted to make sure everything was good before leaving for a week-long summer camp to Lake Michigan. I had never been away from home before outside of staying with relatives due to an emergency hospitalization or overnight visits with close friends and family. It took quite a bit of pleading and my mother's intervention to get permission to go. So in the next section of your book, um, how old were you at the start of Selfish Summer? So Selfish Summer was the budding of, you know, there was like 11 or 12 years old, so... I was beginning, you know, the journey of my womanhood, as it were, <laughs> the preteen years. Preteen, yeah. <laughs> and so why did you blame yourself? Because you describe a situation that happened where our mother was attacked. Um, and I was, I was there present for that particular situation. But why did you blame yourself for what happened to our mother? even though you weren't, you weren't even there. Um, so by this time, for about five or six years, I had been, you know, I saw myself as mom's protector. And so when you were off doing what boys do and growing up and not being around as far as, you know, you're with your friends, with relatives, whatever the case may be, um, because you're growing up being three years older than me, um, I felt like if I was there, I could have prevented it because I could have been a distraction. Um, I also talk about how I was sick. And one of the things um, our mother was very good at was tending to us when we were sick or had injuries. And so I felt that if I was there, and especially if I was there and I was sick, then that particular instance wouldn't have happened and I would have been a distraction for one or both parties um, because of me being present. Okay. So you talk about, you know, your, the beginning of your budding woman, womanhood, the, the preteens. 
So how did your, how did our environment influence your choice of first mating or your, your first love as it were? Uh, this is a huge question. So our environment was very dangerous, uh, filled with drug dealers, cops with questionable intent, gang bangers, and it seemed like I was surrounded by lustful men, um, you know, through a rock. Somebody was giving me the eye. So in the midst of all that, um, a man approached me that was, you know, gentle, kind, and very protective, uh, soft-spoken, wasn't yelling, but yet, you know, commanded presence when it was time to be serious. Um, he had also come from a two-parent household, um, living a modest, you know, middle-class lifestyle. And at the time, that's what I was looking for, coming from, you know, an impoverished environment, a single-parent household filled with turmoil. His life, you know, seemed to be the idea of what, you know, American, being an American stood for. Um, so that's what I was looking for. Nothing grand, just everyday folk doing what they're supposed to do, living a quiet life. <laughs> okay. And when you say a man, you mean how, how old was your first love? Uh, my first love was five years older than me. <laughs> okay. And so at what age did you become a mother? Yes, um, I became a mother at 15 and I gave a little bit, well, I, I became pregnant at 15 and I gave birth a little over a month after my 16th birthday. Um, I caveat that and, and to say that I was with um, my son's father for almost two years before we got pregnant. Um, I surprise people when I tell them that my very first relationship, very first kiss, very first everything, that relationship was seven years long. And that's long than most, longer than most marriages. Um, so I tease myself and others by saying that my very first relationship was a marriage. Well, I mean, yeah, by, and actually by common law, uh, because seven years is considered a common law marriage in most commonwealths. So ab absolutely. So then how did your life experiences influence how you intended to raise your son? Because I thought a little differently, um, my focus became negative reinforcement. Um, I watched the people and the things that were going on um, in my environment and so I watched a decision someone make and see the outcome. And if the outcome was undesirable, then I did the total opposite. Um, so, for example, when I was a teen mother, I saw other teen mothers dropping out of school um, or they were attending an alternative education program. And from what I saw, that wasn't working for them and it didn't work out for them. And they just had a lot of drama and stuff going on. So I did the opposite. I decided to stay enrolled in a regular curriculum um, by any means necessary and just proceeded to make sure that my son had options um, in life. I, I didn't want him to live in an impoverished environment. Um, I didn't want him to lose his virginity at a young age. I wanted him to be old enough to make a well-informed decision. And I really wanted him not to get involved in the fast money 
street life um, that we were surrounded in and having a father who did not come from that was very helpful in making that a visual reality for him. So what are some of the gaps that you see now that he's an adult? Because he is, um, he's older than 21. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have been a parent for, you know, almost 30 years. (laughs) Uh, What are some of the gaps that you see now where your intention may have, I'm not going to use the term falling short because nobody, there's no manual for parenting. Right. (laughs) Um, But where are some of the things that you think maybe you could have addressed uh, sooner? Uh, One, I was very overprotective, like to the point of almost mommy dearest like. Um, I tease myself that I was the mom from Malcolm in the Middle. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Laugh about it now, but, you know, it was just, there was no room for error because things had to go a certain way. I didn't have time to be running here and running there. I didn't have time for him to be breaking bones and making mistakes because I was a single mom working multiple jobs, going to school. You know, there was just no room for him to act up. And acting up is part of growing and, you know, becoming a person who can make critical decisions and think through things. And he had a lot of he was lacking in the social skills area. I mean, he did sports, he hung out with people, he had friends. Um, but when it came to different types of social situations that weren't controlled by me or weren't controlled by a coach or weren't controlled by a school teacher, he really didn't have those skills to cope. I mean, he didn't have a cell phone. He was, you know, I kept him from social media and he never really went to a party party. Um, The one instance that I knew of him going to a party, I immediately ejected him from that um, because he wasn't honest. He lied to me about it. So, um, yeah. So that's one big thing um, that I wish I could do over again. But I realized I suffer from the same issues. So that's why my church, Heaven's Harvest Ministries, is so important because of our pastor and the men at that church, um, they really enveloped him and trained him um, in such a way that's kind of taken him to where um, his path should be and how to be a, a true man, the man that God has called him to be in his divine time. Playbridge's Press presents Cyanidation, The Refinement of My Life, a memoir by Dr. Genoa R. Graham, Ph.D. Cyanidation is about survival, perseverance, and spiritual growth. Genoa Graham spent many years of her life fighting battles, only to discover that the world was not her enemy, but rather her own mind. Raised in a home of mental and emotional instability, the author struggles to define her own happiness and create a normal life 
as a functional contributor to society. Her spiritual growth gives her the tools needed to unlock her happiness, reduce her fears, and move forward. Available everywhere in paperback and digital. So you mentioned, you know, that you had a similar uh, experience to him. And you also mentioned this in the third triptych social caterpillar. What age did that start for you? That was in my early 20s. Um, It wasn't until I was like a junior, senior in college that I really felt like I could like truly socialize and be me and explore that. And so, you know, part of college years and part of being a young adult is experiencing things. And so that's, that's what I did. I tried being social. I tried a lot of different things. And my early 20s is when all of that happened. <laughs> so what was your childhood like? Um, that question, you talk about it specifically in this section of the book. How many times had you rehearsed the answer to that question before going out? Honestly, I didn't rehearse it. Um, That was a question that came up a lot for some reason. Um, I think it was because I was so different than everybody else. Um, People would just walk up to me and say, oh, you don't belong here. Or what are you doing here? Um, Typically, yeah. (laughs) And it wasn't in a condescending way. Like, you it, it was just something about me that was different than the company I kept. Let's just say it that way. So when answering social questions, my go-to method is I would listen to other people and how they answered. And then I would piggyback off of their answer um, with something similar or parallel so I could try to relate to them. So for example, if somebody spoke about, you know, their childhood and family gatherings, and they shared a story about a family gathering and what they loved about it, um, I would do the same. But I would tend to overshare. And so some of our family feuds, you know, they they resulted in fistfights. And I learned by sharing some of this information that family fistfights are not typical. And you don't mention those outside of the home in social gatherings. So some of those those learning curves of what to share, what not to share, that kind of thing. Um, I walked in, you know, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. (laughs) But that's not always appropriate in every situation. So learning that was contributed to my my recoil into myself, you know, my chrysalis. (laughs) So this triptych also... um explores a number of health challenges that arose as a consequence, as you say, and I I love this, an awkward navigation of survival, survival fumbling toward a personal perception of success. Um, What was involved in the decision to get professional treatment? My sanity. There was, I I knew 
I was having a tough time socializing with others because I was really trying to get out there, really trying to see myself as a part of this world. And I knew the way that we were raised and I knew my way of thinking was different than everybody else. But that's not always a negative thing. I just needed tools and ways to manage or even cure my symptoms. So my physical symptoms, my physical health, and then my mental health, they were all kind of coming together and correlated. And I would notice different mental things that were happening to me would, you know, I had physical things or vice versa. I would have physical things happen to me. And then my, my mental state would go, I would get very emotional all this time. And I really felt like I couldn't talk to friends or family because nobody else was having these types of issues. And then the other thing was, because I had accomplished so much at such a young age, people tend to come to me for answers and not think that I have any questions. So I had to get professional help in order to figure my life out um, because I realized that I was not doing my son any good um, without getting seeking assistance. And I was I thought that I was actually damaging him because I didn't understand him. Um, I, I thought something was wrong with my son, but actually it was, it was me. <laughs> he was normal and I didn't understand what normal was. <laughs> wow. So I, that's yes. No, that's, go ahead. Yeah, that was huge. I was damaging him because I was forcing him into my box of what I understood normal to be knowing that what I understand normal to be is not normal. So I had to get help so that I didn't damage him more. That's, that's a, that's very telling. I mean, well, all of what you said, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, survival survivors remorse. Um, And your people looking at you just from your achievements alone and not really looking at you as a human being. And then when you try to, the time that you take to kind of explain who you are, what your experiences have been, and then you overshare and people draw back from you. So it really, to me, it makes sense why you wouldn't be so open about the problems that you're having. I think, you know, a lot of us do have issues and we, we think, well, everybody has issues. And so life needs to continue to be lived. And so I don't have time to deal with this. Nobody's throwing me a pity party. I, I, need, I need to figure this out because I have several other things to figure out. Um, how important has professional treatment been to your continued healing process? It, w- it was a lifesaver. Um, once you really can't, you really can't start the healing process until you know what's wrong. And so once I knew what my issues were, then I can identify tools to help me through them. And then, so those professional medical tools carried me for a long time, but I was, you know, we're still evolving. We're still growing. And so now as a born again believer, I now turn to declaration of prayer, fasting and other spiritual methods for my healing. Um, But I also have the other tools that I learned 
from the medical doctors. Um, so I still go to the doctor for diagnosis, diagnostic analysis. Um, but you have to know what to pray for and you have to know the difference between spiritual sickness um, that God can deliver you from and then physical sickness that the doctors have to practice to fix. And so a lot of my issues were a combination of both of them. So I now can identify, okay, this is something internal in my mental state that I'm emotionally attached to or emotionally triggered or emotionally fighting. Let me go fast and pray on that versus, oh, this is a medical, medical issue. I need a doctor to come in and, and tell me what's going on. <laughs> you know, it's very interesting that you say that because particularly, and you know, I, I don't like to generalize, generalize groups of people or demographics of people. I'll just say from our standpoint as a, a family um, and extended families, we don't like doctors. I mean, our, our particular um, experience, of course, with our mother and knowing the, the background of her being a, uh, you could say a state-sponsored addict, if um, the best way to put it, uh, because they misdiagnosed her when she was eight um, with uh, epilepsy and was giving her 3,000 milligrams of phenobarbital a day, prescribed that to her, only to find out, I think, 30 years later that she just had a, um, like a neurological disorder that didn't require that kind of medication at all. And I just, I wanted to ask you, you know, there are some people who would look at you and look at all that you have accomplished and reason that, well, you know, you turned out okay. I mean, what, what, is, what is the real overall problem and, and what would you say to them? I, 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 so words come to mind that I'm safe now. I can't, I can't say those words. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, the, it's like uh, Annie M, M from The Wizard of Oz. You know, when she was talking to Dorothy Gulch, I've been waiting 20 years to to tell you something. And now that I'm a Christian woman, I can't say it. Um, <laughs> but I will say <laughs> that the race is not finished. Um, it's an ongoing process. And I do get treated because I have a doctorate and now two doctorates. Oh, well, you know, you've already accomplished everything. You know, what people would dream of what more do you want now you're just being greedy um that Good that's Lord. not it yeah and it, it, it's so not it so when you live the majority of your life and childhood under a flag of survival that's not okay that's like saying oh you survived the apocalypse good job oh, but you're not out of the woods yet I still have challenges. I still have triggers. Um, I still have other life management issues um, that I will deal with for the rest of my life. It, it, they're not going to go away. Um, I just have to manage it. Um, one of the greatest challenges is relationships and everything is built on relationships. Um, I'm better than I used to be. However, I still struggle in developing relationships, personal and professional, who to trust having discernment what it would it or is this a genuine relationship development or is there 
and underline. I mean, there's all those types of questions. And then the whole balance of the physical um, sickness versus the spiritual sickness. You know, you could be so skeptical of a person if they don't say the, the things that you anticipate or behave in a manner that you anticipate to where you can think that there's a problem brewing, but it's really not. You're just being a pessimist. And so you have to recognize that and, you know, go a different direction. <laughs> so in your About the Author, among your accolades, you list impoverished teen parent survivor. Why is this just as important as your doctorates? It's important because it's a testimony that it's not how you start off in life, but it's how you choose to run the race. Um, you're never really finished until you close your eyes for the final time, but there are no limitations. There's only temporary roadblocks. So you can do whatever you want to do. You can do the unexpected. You can do the unimaginable. It doesn't matter. I mean, you hear that all the time um, from people that have done great things. Me, I'm a person who's, who's touchable, who you can call, you can see, you know, I'll come meet you for coffee. I'm not untouchable. Um, so if I can do it, other people can do it as well. You begin your book um, saying that God was in control of your life. That was how you ended the uh, preamble to the book itself. I wanted to ask you, was there a moment where you realized that God was in control? Like, was yes. there a particular moment that you remember? There was a particular moment. Um, it was back in January, 2012, about a month or so after I moved um, to Georgia where I'm located now. And I attended Heaven's Harvest Ministries for the first time. That was a very pivotal moment for me because I felt more love from a group of strangers. I mean, I had never met any of these people in my life other than our cousin that attended. And I talk about that in the book as well. Um, I felt more love from a group of a room full of strangers that I did in a personal relationship that I had at the time. And then I kind of felt like, okay, this is, this is home. This, organization, these people, there's a greater pool for me here. And so when I reflect on all the things that have happened in my life and how my son's journey is going and how the church was a pivotal part of that, I really believe that God was in control to put me through all that I have been through so that I could help others and then put me with the church so that my son could get all of the things that I couldn't give him and that his father couldn't give him to launch him out of the family curses, because that was my prayer as well. We have so many curses and so many negative things on both sides of our family. I wanted him to be free of all of that. And so Heaven's Harvest Ministries is without a shadow of a doubt that that pivotal point. So there was one question that I forgot to put on the list and I'm being completely transparent. And so you can take a moment to, to answer it, but um, this season is about well-being. And so I wanted to ask you 
what does well-being mean to you? Well-being to me is having a healthy balance of emotion, um, accountability, and friendships. Because without those three things, you will get lost and begin to do destructive things. If you don't have friendships, then you don't have love because friendship is the foundation of love. If you're not held accountable, then you're just going to do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, which we all know that's not a good thing. Right. Um, and then just being balanced in, in every way, shape, and form. You don't have, have to have all the money in the world. You don't have to have all of the likes and all of the accolades, but there's a balance. Everybody has a different level of handling the things in their life and handle them, handle them well, and that's that's it. Okay, so give us the deets on where we can get info on the book and on the book tour. So my book can be purchased online um, via Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, or Bookshop.org. Um, there are also ebook versions available for download. Um, the next book signing event is scheduled for Saturday, March nineteenth, two thousand twenty-two. Um, I don't have information posted at this time, but it will be on my website, which is www.drgmp.com on the events page. And then you can also go to my Facebook page, which is Dr. GMP. Okay. And the, the, you have two companies or three companies. Um, yeah. So go over those real quick too. Cause you, 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 so you're a finance guru, you're a processes and process improvement guru. So give us the, a little bit of the, the, um, a blurb about each of your companies um, if people want to be able to reach out to you for, for those um, reasons as well. Okay. So utilitarian financial consulting, that is the umbrella that I do the save you time and save you money from the household corporations to the multinational corporations. Um, all the project work goes in there. Educational Debt Cancellation Foundation is the outreach. It is a 501c3 nonprofit um, where I host workshops um, to single mothers, women, men, kind of targeted topics. Um, those are paid workshops where people pay to come. And then the proceeds from those workshops go to scholarships and grants for single mothers um, to pay off their student loans. I also have a partnership with Heaven's Harvest Ministries as a community initiative called Stewardship of Grace. Um, that's where we go in and we are helping churches to kind of bounce back from COVID. Um, a lot of churches have been closing because of the um, assembly restrictions and things are just not going well. Their churches are falling apart. People are leaving the church and we are just diving into the community and helping them rebuild and reattach to the community so they can become healthy again. Okay. Dr. Genoa Graham, PhD, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you again for having me. Full appreciation of Dr. Genoa Graham, PhD, for spending time with us today. For me, the focus of the episode is good health and well-being. 
My sister didn't put her trauma on display to be understood. I think she displayed it to contextualize the possibilities of being human with the goal of raising awareness. Experiences like hers are far more common than even I would like to admit. Her memoir has focused my attention on the reality that my doings continue to play a role in the cycle of that experience. We expect the genius of our minds to save us, to provide a freedom everlasting. It cannot, for the mind is a tool of our being. We use it to craft feeling into images and words. This is an attempt to recreate continuity or a narrative of safety. And safety is not freedom. There is no such thing as freedom or everlasting. There is only being in this moment. For more information on Dr. Genoa Graham, PhD, go to www.mjgstorycreation.com and click on the MJG Show button. If you enjoyed this episode, share it. And don't forget to like, favorite, or subscribe. Until next time, be well, feel love. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Graham. The theme was composed by Travis D. Artist. Javier Acuna is the episode audio engineer. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham.